Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are uh, this morning taking uh, a little bit of a break from our series uh, in the book of Exodus, although we will look at that passage a little bit today. Um, And we're going to look instead at Psalm 2. And before we do, before we read the text, I just want to pause and acknowledge the tension in this moment. Uh, I certainly feel it. I'm not aware if you do. Um, There's a certain uh, familiarity, even boredom, that sets into preaching most weeks. I don't know if you know that. Um, you probably do, right? After you've been at a church for a little bit of time, the new shine uh, has rubbed off of the preacher. Uh, and you can't help but shake the notion nearly every week that uh, you've heard something like this before. Uh, I, as a preacher, can't shake the notion that I think I've said this before, <laughs> um, right? You know the marks, you know my cadence, you know that I'm nearing the point where I'll remind you of the gospel. Uh, there is a little bit of a boredom of two people who know each other very well, but... Uh, You don't miss that boredom until it's gone, uh, and you stand up to preach all of a sudden, and you recognize that uh, you just don't have words, right? That there there are no words, Um, that whatever is about to come is not predictable. In some ways, it's a good thing as a preacher, right? The the, the worst thing you can be as a preacher is to feel uh, like your voice is white noise in the background somewhere, Um, but it's also... It's hard uh, when you're aware of a natural human tendency towards uh, shifting from a listening mode into an evaluative mode, right? And I know that we're all there, me me included, right? That there's a natural tendency to sit there and to wonder, did the preacher say something I agreed with or something I disagreed with? Did he say too much or too little? Was he over-political or was he under-political? Did he say something that betrayed a subtle rightward bias or a leftward bias in his own thinking? I'm tempted to take an evaluative mode of myself in this moment. Did I say enough? Did I not say enough? To beat myself up uh, afterwards for what I said or didn't say. And so I just want to take a moment and pray. Um, Preaching is not about the views uh, or the political uh, leanings of the preacher or the congregants. Uh, It is a moment of listening to the voice of Jesus speak to his beloved. It's a moment where both preacher and congregant alike are seeking a voice that is none of ours, but is the voice of our Savior, the voice of the one that Scripture tells us relates to us as a husband does to his bride. The preaching is a hearing of the voice of our beloved calling us to walk away from other lovers and to come to him and to rest in him and to find life in him. And so for a moment, I'd just like to pray um, that God silence those voices of criticism and evaluation, uh, that it's, it's, just, it's really natural. That's the mode that our world puts us in right now. And just to ask the, that Jesus would speak to us, because I need to hear him, and we need to hear him. So let's ask him to speak. Lord Jesus, we would hear your voice. Lord, there's just so many voices. There's so many voices in our hearts and in our heads. And we need to hear your voice. 
We need to hear the voice of the one who gave his life to love us. We need to hear the voice of the one who always speaks to us in kindness, of the spouse who always approaches us in love. Even when you start with sit down, we need to talk. It's the voice of our lover. It's the voice of the one who has already told us that there is nothing in this world, neither heights nor depths nor angels nor principalities, that will ever separate us from your love. And so, Lord, help us to draw near to you and to listen to your voice. Drown out all of those other voices. Lord, even drown out my voice so that we together would listen to the voice of our Savior, that we together would find our hope in a better story, that we would find a hope that cannot be shaken. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look today at Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is, uh, in many ways, uh, the preeminent statement of the political theology of the Bible. What does that mean? Uh, This was the psalm that we believe was read aloud or sung at the coronation of Israel's kings when David and all of his subsequent sons uh, took the throne of Judah, that this was the prayer that served in in those services. It's a reminder that Israel lived their lives much as the church lives ours. Uh, subject to things that are beyond our power, powers that are above our abilities to rein in or to control. It begins uh, with the statement, why do the nations rage? And it provides an answer. So let's stand and attend to this reading of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. The psalmist begins with the question, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the first thing that I want us to observe, uh, both from this text and about what we've been through over this past week, is that what we have experienced this week is not unusual. Now, it is unusual in the sense that it's the only thing like it that any of us have lived through in our nation and our time. But this is, from the perspective of the Bible, what nations do. Nations rage. Nations bent on on, on competing for power and supremacy rage. They rage within themselves. They rage against one another. 
that the nations rage and the rulers of the nations plot to get power and to keep power. Now, this feels unusual to me. I didn't live through the 1960s, no matter how old I look after this year. I didn't live through the 1960s. I didn't live through Vietnam. I didn't live through the civil rights movement. I didn't live through the Kennedy assassination. So for me, my defining national trauma has been 9-11. That's the last thing that I remember distinctly, every word spoken to me and where I was when I learned. And it obviously, that day remains uniquely dark. But obviously, this feels different. This feels uh, like an internal turmoil within our own nation, the raging of our nation against itself. And it forces us as Americans to acknowledge that we are one of the raging nations. Right? This has been, it's been, uh, in, in times of relative peace and stability, it's been easy to not feel this as an American. Right? To feel that we are somehow different and immune from the ordinary operations of human government and clinging to power. This isn't in any way to downplay the many unique blessings of living in our nation. Right? We enjoy uh, the protection of many of our God-given rights. We've enjoyed a stable national history, relatively speaking. We've enjoyed the imprint of Christianity in our history and in our government in many very real ways. But in the taxonomy of the Bible, it's not one nation unique against other nations. It's the nations and then it's the kingdom. Right? It's the kingdom of the Savior, the rule of the Messiah, and then there's the nations of the world. And we, in that story, we are one of the nations. We're not the kingdom. We're, we're permeated by the kingdom. We are, we have a, uh, there are faithful churches. There's believers over our history. But we have to come to terms with the fact that the raging of the nations is what nations do. On Wednesday, uh, a day that was forever long, I began the day with a video conference call with a friend of mine. You'll probably get tired of me mentioning at some point because he's just so cool. Uh, but a friend of mine who pastors a small house church movement in Afghanistan. Member of a minority population, not only religiously but also ethnically uh, in Afghanistan. When, he asked, when I asked him how we could pray for him and his people, this is what he said. He said, could you pray for the peace talks that are going on this week between the government and the Taliban? First off, I had to confess, you know, in America, we can kind of live in a bubble. I said, what peace talks? I didn't know that was happening. But after four years of civil war between the established government of Afghanistan and the Taliban, they were meeting together uh, in Qatar uh, to uh, engage in peace talks. For my friend, uh, neither of these parties is a great option for him, if we're honest. Right? It's a question of whether or not it's a government that would like to arrest him, his family, and his church, or an anti-government that would like to stone or light on fire himself, his government, and his church, so, or his family, and his church. So, rock in a hard place. It's easy that morning when he asked me to pray for him to feel the words of Psalm 2. This is the raging of the nations against the people of God. And what my friend wants... His, his, his goals for his nation are really relatively modest, right? He wants to live. He wants the freedom to raise his family. He wants to be able to witness to the hope of the gospel. He wants to be able to pastor his church and plant more churches. By Wednesday afternoon, uh, I began to want very much the same thing for me and my family and my church, <laughs> right? To live at peace, to be left alone, 
to be able to raise my children in peace, to be able to testify to the gospel, to plant our church and others. I felt in that moment that the raging of the nations is not out there, but it's also in here. Now, one of the unique things about America uh, is that I think that the church here is uniquely tempted in a way that the church and other nations isn't to get drawn into the rage of nations. Right, there, the, my friend was not for a moment uh, prompted to think that maybe he should uh, go and picket at the peace talks. Right, he is aware of the fact that there is something called the nations and then there's the church. And that he was praying, he was hoping. But there's something about both our democratic system and all of its beauty that draws us in. There's something about the unique ways that we narrate the history uh, in our nation between Christianity and America and the way the two relate to each other. But my great prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would not get drawn into the rage, right? That we would find some measure of distance between ourselves and the raging of the nations and the plottings of its ruler and rulers. We have to acknowledge uh, that the church is often drawn into the raging. There was an article in The Atlantic this week uh, that described what happened on Wednesday as the Christian insurrection. Now, we all know, we can all quibble uh, with the ways that uh, mainstream media uh, struggles to describe the life of faith uh, in an accurate way. Uh, Emma Green was the author of this. She has actually a pretty good track record of trying to understand Christians. But what she simply is pointing to is firsthand reports uh, of what we all saw, that many, not all, of those who are engaged uh, in political violence were carrying Jesus Saves banners and playing praise music. Some of the same songs that we sing on Sundays uh, formed the soundtrack to Wednesday afternoon. And so if Christianity in our nation, for some, not for all, leads there, we have to say that we've allowed ourselves to lose the plot in some kind of significant way. That we've allowed ourselves to lose the plot of the biblical story and our place in it. Because it's certainly true that Jesus saves, but not like that, (laughs) right? Not like this. What are we just saying? Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. By your spirit, Lord. The story of the Bible is not one of conflict between Republicans and Democrats. Not between uh, one vision of one nation and others. It's between the nations and the kingdom of God. Between the, the human plots and schemes of the nations and the certainty of God's kingdom. The psalm isn't done with the nations when he asks, why do the nations rage? What does he say in verse 8, the promise to the Messiah? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. What do America and Afghanistan have in common? They belong to Jesus. Whether it is acknowledged today, tomorrow, in our lifetimes or not, one day Revelation ends with the vision of the kingdoms of this world becoming the the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Right, that it all belongs to God by his grace. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to believe that we're locked in a life and death struggle with our own neighbors. 
for our nation. The church can't witness to another kingdom if we are bound up in the rage and vitriol of this one. Stanley Hauerwas puts it this way. I love this line. The church's first task isn't to make the world better. It's to make the world the world. I love that line. The church's first task isn't to make the world better. It's to make the world the world. What does that mean? It's to live our lives by such a different quality of life to have such a more deeply rooted hope and perspective and love and life together and mercy towards one another and posture towards one another, that it makes it clear that the world is the world and the church is the church and that things are different in here and out there and conflict gets resolved differently in here than it does out there and that we are motivated by a different set of principles and guidance. So how do we avoid, how do we break and become free from the rage and recrimination of our moment and of the world. Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Right? God in heaven laughs. And he's not laughing at us. Right? He's not mocking us. He's not mocking the world as though somehow he doesn't care about us. He's laughing because in heaven his throne is not wobbling and his crown is not slipping. That he is reigning over a stable kingdom that is not in doubt. When everything about our world feels like it very much is, his throne is unapproachable. If there's one thing that was most jarring to me about Wednesday, well, there's a lot. (laughs) One of the things that was most jarring was seeing that that could happen there. Right? That, That something that... Uh, If you've ever visited the nation's capital, you're going through metal detectors and you've got, uh, you know, you feel like, hey, if there's a safe place in this world, it's the White House and it's the Capitol building and those places are kind of sacred hallways of our government and democracy. And so the notion that the chaos could happen there was a violation. It felt like, oh man, is there any place that's safe? And the promise here is that there is a place that is safe. There is a place that is free from the warring and the chaos of this world. That the throne room of heaven remains untinged and unshaken by the raging of the nations. I remember the day after 9-11, September 12th. Going uh, to my, I was in college at the time, and going to a college fellowship, our local Christian fellowship meeting. And the preacher that day opening up the psalm that I quoted in our uh, our prayer at the beginning from Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I remember feeling that in my bones on September 11th. Right? If it could happen here, then the foundations are being shaken. I felt that on Wednesday. The foundations feel shaken. And so what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, your life, your heart, your future is secure. It is hidden, as Paul tells us, with God in Christ. It cannot be taken from you. When everything else feels shaken, Christ is our life, Christ is our hope, Christ is our security. Christ is the one who holds on to us when everything else seems to be loosing. 
There is a security beyond the raging of the nations. And friends, our neighbors need to see us planting our hope in that place. Right? Your neighbors uh, don't need your arguments right now. Right? Your neighbors uh, are looking to see whether or not uh, the church has any answers or any hope or if there is only the rage of nations to be offered. But if we can show that we have hearts that are rooted, a hope that is rooted, that we have an anchor for the soul, as the author of Hebrews puts it, that we have a freedom to love, even those who vote differently, think differently, go to different news sources and approach all of the events differently, that we have a strength to love our neighbors from a heart that is not shaken and is not insecure then there is hope for a beautiful witness in the midst of the chaos of this week. And then finally, what can we do? The psalmist says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. I think all Americans right now could do well to be wise and to be warned. Be wise. We need to recover a politics of wisdom. A politics that sees itself in its proper perspective. A politics that doesn't pretend to be the ultimate concern and loyalty of our lives. And we should be warned. I mean, I think I have felt this week the fragility of all of it. Right? The idea that we are not guaranteed a peaceful democracy. We should be warned that there is a real chance, a real chance if we don't recover our ability to love and govern ourselves, to listen to one another, to act towards one another with civility, to trust in our institutions, that there really is a warning in this. That what feels like rock bottom does not necessarily have to be if we don't learn the lessons that it holds. Be wise and be warned. Those are especially words for rulers, right? Those are the the words that the scriptures would speak to both President Trump and President-elect Biden is to be wise and to be warned, right? That any human authority is not ultimate, that all human authorities are accountable before the God of heaven and earth, that all human authorities will be asked to give an account to the king of kings for how they stewarded their rule. So it's incumbent on all of our leaders to be wise and to be warned and to recognize that they are men and women who must give an account of what they do. You know, the supreme political fact of the Christian faith is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Right? That's the moment that we take our political leanings from, that Jesus has ascended into heaven. The man and king, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven and rules all things. That on November 20th, when uh, Joe Biden is inaugurated, he's not ascending to the throne, right? That he's taking a position for a moment that he will one day have to give back. And he will be held accountable for it by the God who orders all things. That ought to be sobering for any man or woman. What do we do in the midst of this? What do we do? We acknowledge that the church, above all, has a call to live at peace and to submit to the rulers and the authorities that are over us and to pray for them. Right? Just as we prayed for President Trump, when it comes time, we'll pray for President Biden. 
We've been praying for both of them for a while now. For some of us, it was terribly hard uh, to pray uh, for President Trump. If you voted differently, if you, if you uh, uh, struggled with his presidency, that was hard to have to name him by name and to pray for him. For some of us, it will be hard to pray for President Biden. But it's our calling as the church to pray for those that God and his providence has set in office. And so we seek to live our lives at peace, to love our neighbors, to build our church, to raise our families, and to live uh, with quietness and faithfulness in our land. What else? You know, it's, it strikes me that in a democracy, uh, it's not quite as easy as saying, O oh, kings, be wise, and be warned, O oh, rulers of the earth. Because the reality is, in, in, in Israel and in its neighbors, uh, the kings really called all the shots, right? It didn't matter if you voted for the king or not, right? It didn't matter if you opposed the king or didn't oppose the king. The king was the king. But in our, uh, in some ways, the genius of democracy is that it divides up kingship 160 million ways or whatever it is uh, in this last election, right? That in some sense, every single one of us has some small stewardship of our governance, that every single one of us contributes in some way towards the governance and future of our nation. So what do we do with our citizenship? Right? What do we do with our one, I, I'm get, probably getting the numbers wrong, but somewhere between 150 and 160 million people voted. What do you do with your 160 millionth of the throne? Well, we have to recognize that what we do with it matters. James Davidson Hunter was the first one I heard say this. I'm not sure if he wrote it, but he said, politics is always downstream of culture. That politics isn't a lead indicator of the health of a nation. It's a, a lagging indicator, right? I mean, what do we all agree on, right or left, that politicians will say what it takes to get elected? And so, uh, in some ways, we get what we tolerate, and we get what we endorse, and we get what we allow to fester in our own hearts, in our own message boards, in our own uh, relations with our neighbors. Right? We, in many ways, set the tone, and our politicians just you know, lick their fingers, stick it in the wind, and feel out which way it's blowing. Every generation, in some ways, gets the politicians that it deserves in that way. And so, if we want better than the vitriol, hatred, anger, and suspicion that we've experienced. We need to hope for better. We need to embody better. We need to learn uh, to live with one another in different ways. We have to refuse a politics based on rage, suspicion, and fear. I don't know if you watched the senatorial speeches uh, late on Wednesday night, but Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska said this, and I won't do his whole speech, uh, but he said uh, on the floor that America is not destined to live like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Two uh, sides locked in an eternal blood feud with one another. That we can do better. We can learn to build something better with our neighbors. I want to look uh, just really briefly at a, a passage that was in the long section of Exodus that we would have been in today. Um, don't worry, uh, we hit the Ten Commandments last week. We're going to catch back up to some other major high points. Um, but in the middle, right after the Ten Commandments, God gives these incredibly specific teachings about the application of what does it mean to not steal, what does it mean to not uh, murder, what does it mean to not commit adultery. It gets into some of the finer uh, points of managing your livestock and grazing land and all that stuff. 
Stuff that would have felt, you know, quite timely this morning. But here's one of the things that, uh, that God commands through Moses in Exodus 25, 35 through 36. This is going to seem obscure, but bear with me. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Okay, so what, uh, what's going on here is God is saying the following. Accidents happen in life, right? Sometimes you raise oxen, and oxen are beasts. They do crazy things. You can't always predict them. If your ox gores your neighbor's ox, there's one set of laws that govern making sure that you both are compensated in that. If, however, uh, your ox is the kind of ox that is gored before, and you leave it unsecured, that that is something else entirely, and that you are guilty in a different way of a kind of negligence. To put it in contemporary terms, if you've got a poodle that you leave in your front lawn, and it goes and yips at a neighbor, that is one kind of guilt. Lease your dog, learn from it. If you have a pit bull that's torn your neighbor up before, and you leave it unleashed in your front yard, that is a different matter entirely. And we have to acknowledge, I promise I will get out of livestock here, that in politics there is such a thing as an ox that has been accustomed to goring. Right? There are political ideas that both on the right and the left bend themselves towards violence and towards oppression. And we should not be surprised when they lead that way. We shouldn't look up and say, what happened here? This is crazy. When you breed into the system a hatred of your neighbor and a viewing of them as their enemy, on both sides, it wreaks destruction. There are ox that are used to goring, and they are not red or blue. They are not donkeys or, or, or elephants. They are what the Bible would call the principalities and powers, something far darker and more destructive they can take control of our hearts and can take control of our politics. And they can lead again and again over the course of human history to violence and to oppression. A politics of ethnic and religious nationalism. A politics that plays into identity-based grievance and victimization. A politics that indulges in lies and conspiracy. A politics that divides the population between the good and the bad, the patriots and the traitors. A politics that raises the stakes of politics to the end of the nation as we know it. Right? If you're heading into an election feeling like if my side loses, then America is dead. You have already laid the groundwork for violence. Verbal violence always eventually leads the way to actual violence. And so right and left alike, be wise and be warned. That there, is, uh, there are things with which we ought not uh, make deals and flirt with. Right? There, this, is, this is necessary for us on both sides. A learning to come together 
to not get locked into a, well, one side did this, so now we can do that. They raised the bar to five, we're going to go to six. They went to seven, we're going to go to eight. They went to nine, we're going to go to ten. To not normalize what should not be normalized. To be wise and to be warned. The psalmist, of course, doesn't end there. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Show your loyalty, your life, your worship to the only true king, the Son who sits on the throne. He holds us, friends. He holds us. There's much that threatens to divide us. I didn't, I mean, I don't know by survey or anything, but I, I've always kind of gotten the feel that our church uh, is pretty evil, evenly kind of divided on who voted for Biden, who voted for Trump. There are so many forces that want to pull us apart. I know that in some ways it took some, an act of faith to show up this morning and to want to be in the room with people that, that honestly, the forces of politics and media and online, whatever that is, are all working to pull us apart. Friends, let's cling to the one who draws us together. Let's cling to the one that tells us our lives are hidden with God in Christ, that his kingdom will never be shaken or broken, that we have in him an anchor for our souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Protect us from our worst impulses. Lead us by your spirit. Help us, Lord Jesus, to root and secure our identity uh, in the one who promises never to leave us or forsake us. Whatever the next two weeks, two years, or two decades hold for us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are not defined by the raging of the nations, but who hear the laughter from heaven's throne and who rejoice in the coming of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.